I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as I go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, we are honored to showcase a role model for leadership of the next generation of financial services, Natalie Brown. With over two decades of extraordinary accomplishments, Natalie is now CEO at Mesero, a prominent financial services firm founded in Chicago. Hear her perspectives on preparedness and luck and how her experiences as a mother of teenagers has made her a better CEO. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Margaret. So nice to see you. It's always good to see you. I wish we could be in person. Me too. We have gotten to be friends over these last few years, which has really been wonderful. It's great when you have like colleagues and friends. And we've talked about a lot of things personally, and I'm excited for us to reprise some of those conversations for our audience because we've had a lot of really good conversations that I think are important for everyone to hear. So we're going to dig into some of that today. So to start, though, can you share with us a little bit about your childhood? You know, we would love to know how your upbringing and your family background influenced your outlook on education, your career aspirations, everything that you're doing now. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really great question. And thank you for asking. I grew up in Northwest Indiana, about an hour from Chicago. And, you know, my parents divorced when I was small. I was five and my sister was two years old and we moved to an apartment in a new town. And this was in the mid 70s. So it was definitely during a time when there really weren't that many divorced parents. And I felt very other and kind of not like everybody else. And I think that shaped in me about my views of education because school was a place that I felt very safe and very special. I had wonderful teachers. My mother purposely moved to the town that she had heard had the best schools and they really did have good schools and the teachers were excellent and they really they knew I was going through a hard time and they made me feel very special and I again felt very I was a great student and they certainly praised me whenever they could and I enjoyed school from a very young age I think because of that wow so you lived in Northwest Indiana. Did you come to Chicago a lot as a kid? I did come to Chicago a lot. You know, to me, you can't be what you can't see. So when I pictured my future yeah. as a young adult, I pictured myself in Chicago in an apartment. I didn't want to live in my mom's basement. It was very motivating for me throughout high school and college to have that goal of, you know, wanting to move to this big, beautiful city that I love that was so close to me. I grew up with season tickets to the Cubs game. So I, I spent a lot of time in Chicago. Oh, yeah. You know, there's that great organization in Chicago, My Block, My Hood, My City, and they're doing something very similar. They're taking kids from the South and West Side and bringing them on these field trips to visit companies in Chicago. And for many of them, it's their first time downtown. They only live four miles away, right? But it's so divided. And then this idea of like, these are all the kinds of jobs you can have, right? Like your whole point, if you can't see it, you can't do it. And it's exactly so critical. Right. It's a great idea. I know. I'm going to plug them again because they're right here in Chicago and any company can set up a, a field trip with them. I'm sure they'd be happy to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. So your younger self who was visiting Chicago, you knew you wanted to have an apartment and live in this great city. Did you have any idea what you might want to do for a job? I didn't. And it's back to the theme that we were just discussing. You know, you really can't be what you can't see. And I didn't understand what a a business career or a career in yeah. finance would, even, would look like or what that even meant. 
at that time when I was young, I, I, I think my memory is that I wanted to be a meteorologist because you could see meteorologists on TV and that felt sort of math and sciencey to me to watch that. And, um, you know, I never pursued that at all, but I think it was, it was, I was a victim at that time of, of not aspiring to something that, you know, that I couldn't see. So I would, my younger self would have said I wanted to be a weather lady. Oh my gosh, that's great. You'd be a really good one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so did you love math and science growing up? For the most part, yes, I did. That's certainly where I was drawn. And when I talk about the teachers sort of identifying me as a good student and making me feel special, they, you know, this was before there was differentiation in the classroom and they would give me a, a grade or two ahead math book and put me in the hallway during math to, to you know, wow. let me do my own thing. And that was something yeah. that, you know, had an impact on my self-esteem and motivated me to continue to do better. So definitely um, gravitated towards math my whole life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And now, and it makes so much sense. You're such a numbers person. I, I am. I am a <laughs> bit of a numbers geek. That's right. So were there any particular teachers or role models or anyone that had a particular influence on your life? Yeah, I would, you know, I would have to say to for this question, it's a great question, but I would have to say my mom. So uh, you know, I oh. mentioned before about uh, my parents getting divorced when I was small. You know, my mom had me when she was 19. And so she was 24 years old when she, you know, moved up me, my five-year-old me and my two-year-old sister to an apartment in a different town. She was a very strong, independent woman. And she really stressed to me from a very young age that I needed to create a life for myself in which I would never be financially dependent on another person. That, you know, mm -hmm. I really needed financial independence was a value that she had and that she instilled in me from a really very young age. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure. And those are things that uh, everyone wonders, how do you instill it in your children without, you know, all the negative experience of it? So how do you give your children an abundant life, but then have them learn, you know, the kinds of things that that hardship had you learn? And it's just such a balance. Do you have an answer? It's so true. Yeah. What you're, what you're saying is exactly true. And the way that this came about was a very organic way, right? But when it's right. inorganic and you have to sort of instill those values in your kids, it can certainly be challenging because we all want to give our kids a a backstop or the help that they need. And if they perceive yeah. that backstop, it certainly does change. I think it does change motivation. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into your kids in just a minute and talk about that. So what was your first paying job? What did you learn from it? So my first paying job was a telemarketer at a portrait studio. Well, I, oh, sold, I sold portrait packages over the phone to people that didn't want to talk to me in the yeah. 80s. And so there were certainly some bad experiences and people that used foul language and were really nasty to me. But I did learn something super important from this job. I did it for two summers and it was a primarily com commission based compensation in this role. You know, there was a small, you know, hourly wage, but it was primarily commission based. And I got a lot better the second summer. And I made a lot more money the second summer than I did the first summer. And I, I, I didn't like the job either summer. But I think it has to do with confidence and experience. You know, was I was much more efficient. I would get off the phone quicker with someone I, who I knew, you know, was not interested. And I think also just the confidence in my voice sold more, many more portrait packages the next summer. So to me, it definitely taught me something about experience and experience driving, you know, success. 
Yeah. Well, and you always have to be selling, even if you are a numbers person, like as a CFO, you had to sell through, you know, your point of view and, you know, recommendations. And I mean, you always have to sell. That's right. That's Even if you're not in a sales job. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So then your big job was with Nuveen. You were there for almost 20 years. It was clearly foundational for everything that you're doing now. I'd love to hear just one or two highlights of your experiences at Nuveen that prepared you for your CEO role today. Sure. Um, well, first off, I had two um, women role models at Nuveen that really were very interested in my development and, you know, identified me, I feel like, as an emerging leader or at least someone that they really wanted to retain for a long time. So they brought me along for really lots of great projects, including debt refinancings and various M&A transactions. So I feel really fortunate for that. I also feel really fortunate for the fact that, you know, I ended up, I was there almost 20 years, but I ended up in some really meaty roles of increasing responsibility. And I was in these roles for four or five years at a time. So you really leave the role you know, a different person than when you came into it. You know, a couple of um, a couple of the roles I'll talk about is after I had been the head of financial planning and analysis and sort of doing the budget every year for a few for for several years, you sort of get to the point where you're like, you know, how many times can I roll up this financial plan? And the the firm was public at the time and the head of investor relations role opened up and you know, that was really a big opportunity for me to kind of get out from behind spreadsheets and the numbers like we talked about before and really have a more third party facing role where in a crafted messaging for the firm, which was something I had never done before, at least the financial messaging. So there was a PR element of it and, and talking to the buy and sell side analysts in New York was very exciting for me. You know, I set up an investor day at a hotel in New York City, you know, as a young professional, and I had never done anything like that before and even had to think through the AV and the IT. And, you know, this was a while ago when all of this wasn't um, as second nature as it, as it is to us now, right? So I was given opportunities to really grow and develop in ways that made me uncomfortable. But when you get that sort of uncomfortable feeling, right, that's when you know you're really growing. I was also given the opportunity to manage a large, diverse team, you know, right before I left. And this large, diverse team had people in different locations, you know, people of, of different races, of different um, kind of education status. I had people on my team that that didn't graduate from college and I had people on my team with master's degrees. So I really enjoyed managing that large, diverse team. I, I didn't know that I would. And then when I went to interview, you know, for my next role, one of the first questions was going to be, have you managed a large, diverse team? So yeah. that's one of the reasons I would say that I ended up here at Mesero, that I was able to sort of explain those two roles. And I think that's one of the reasons they decided that I was a fit for the CFO role here. At what point along this whole journey did you have an aspiration to be a CEO? I didn't until um, <laughs> until the, the president role became open and we all understood that whoever took that president role would likely be the CEO in a year as long as everything went well. That was the plan, right? So when we were looking for that person and I was the CFO, I actually referred a, a colleague, a former colleague to the interview for the role. I did was I didn't believe I was being considered, nor was I interested myself in throwing my hat in the ring for the role. I think the first time I can remember 
picturing myself in the role was when the, our head of HR in a meeting with me one day said, don't you think it's you? Is this not you? We, I think it's you. I see you as this kind of a leader. So hearing somebody else say that they yeah. thought of me that way, somebody I really respect and I know is really good at assessing talent, hearing him say that, put it into my head. And then one or two other people said it to me. And I felt like I had to think through, could I picture that? And could I picture myself successful in that? Yeah. Who are the people you talk to about it to figure out if you could do it? My husband. I talked to my husband um, quite a while to, to figure out if I could do it. And, you know, I have the, the mentors that I talked to from Nuveen, the, the, those women mentors. I talked to both of them as well. And I certainly have some wonderful mentors here at Mazaro that I spent a lot of time talking, talking with them to, to see if, if what they thought and get feedback from them if they could picture me in the role. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Well, I'm so glad you took it. Thank you. Me too. Me too. It's been wonderful. <laughs> so you and I have had a lot of conversations over drinks, coffee, dinner, lunch, all sorts of, you know, ingestions <laughs> over the years about the balance of risk, preparedness, and luck, and that there is a bit of luck. And I think we've talked about that there's this real discouragement right now against women acknowledging luck. You know, don't say you're lucky. It's because you're smart, you're hardworking. And I think that actually does a disservice to the younger women just thinking, okay, if I do all these things, I'm going to be CEO. And, you know, there's very few CEO roles out there. Not everyone's going to be a CEO and nor do they have to, right? There are all sorts of wonderful ways you can have a phenomenal leadership career. The CEO does not need to be, you know, the aspiration point. So I think you are quite wise on the subject, and I would love for you to kind of share what you've shared with me over the years about this. I know you have some experience where people have told you specifically, don't you dare say that you were lucky, and how you've sort of navigated that and, and what your narrative is about it now. Yes, we have, had, we have had quite a few conversations about this, and I'm really glad that you brought it up. I think that there is an element of being in the right place at the right time, which also is a different way to say luck. That's one of the primary drivers of me ending up in this role. As we talked about, I, you know, I didn't aspire to it. I wasn't gunning for it. And it wasn't a long-term goal of mine to be a CEO or a president or overall leader of a firm. I did not picture that for myself. And I do feel very fortunate that I was in the spot that I was in when the role became available. I was fortunate in that I was the CFO in a very strategic CFO. I had ended up inheriting a team here at Mesero that was very talented and was handling a lot of the day-to-day -day responsibilities like the audit and the banking relationships that I thought I would be doing. So that gave me time to develop my relationships with the board members and the business leaders across the firm and it ended up getting me a seat on the board very quickly within one year of my joining the firm. And certainly that helped propel me, you know, to the CEO role. Now, do I think I'm capable and do I think I was prepared and a hard worker and was I doing a great job? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, I could have still been all those things, right? And not have been in the right place at the right time. And I don't want younger women or young professionals generally, you know, some of the main questions I get when I speak to young people is, 
How do I become a CEO faster? How do I become you? What was your five-year plan when you were me because I want to be a CEO? Right. I think that's great. I think that's great to want to be a CEO. But at the same time, when you just think about the numbers, there's just very few of these young people that actually will be CEOs unless they want to start their own firm, right? It doesn't mean that they weren't a success or that they aren't a success. If I ended up in a different role or if I ended up being the CFO at Mesereau for the 10 years like I was planning instead of transitioning to the CEO role, I would argue that my career was still a huge success. So I think it's important to acknowledge good fortune or luck or being in the right place at the right time. But it does sometimes trigger other women and they think I'm being overly humble or practicing too much humility. In my opinion, I haven't changed, even though I've gotten that advice over and over again. I haven't continued acknowledging my good fortune and I will continue to do that because I think it's authentic. I do too. And I think it's so important. Again, the only way to help people is to really authentically share your journey and to help them. Again, it's risk, preparedness, luck, all three of those things. And there are certain times in your life where it's just not worth the risk too, right? Like I know I've had those moments, these watershed moments where I didn't take the risk because my personal life just was not in the right place for it, you know, and then other things have come up and I've gone for it. Right. And so there are just so many things that come together. It is not a linear path. That's absolutely right. And so talking about these paths to CEO, I love talking to people who come from the different backgrounds. You know, there's the CMO to CEO path, which you find a lot in like consumer oriented, very heavily brand oriented organizations. There's the CFO to CEO path and COO to CEO path. So I'd love to hear how your life and career as a CFO uniquely prepared you for this current CEO role that you have. I mean, for me, I have had moments in my career when I was the finance person or the accounting person and had to translate the financial results for a leader at, at whatever position that that's, you know, wasn't a P&L person and didn't really have a strong grasp of the difference between a P&L and the, and, the, and the balance sheet. And that can be really challenging since it's my job to, to create shareholder value and our shareholder value is created primarily by our bottom line. That's what happens. So if I, if I didn't have a good grasp of that, I certainly would be, would be behind, <laughs> would, be, would be behind. So the fact that I understand yeah. that and I think that it gives when we're speaking strategically, um, the fact that I'm already grounded in the numbers and nobody's like I had to do in my career at, t at times is trying to kind of get me there and help me understand mm -hmm. before we can start talking strategy. With this background that I have, I, I appreciate it so much and we can just sort of start at the strategic part and hit, and hit the ground running. So I think it's invaluable. I, I do get that it's rare. A lot of a lot of us are introverts. I'm I am an introvert, and I think a lot of times a CMO or even maybe a COO might have be ahead of me in the whole in the vision part of it, and that's what I was certainly concerned about about this role. But I work harder on the vision part, and I've already got the P and L part down because I was a CFO. Yeah, well, and you did all that cross training, you know, all that stuff you did in investor relations. I mean, that's marketing, right? That's, that's true. Communications. I mean, that's that's all of yeah, it. Yeah, that's a great um, point. Yeah, I know it's great that you had that chance to do all of that. Yeah, you've also said that being a mother has helped you also develop skills that you needed to prepare for a CEO role. I would love to hear in what ways. The two primary ways that being a mom has really, I think, helped me prepare for this role is 
it increased my diplomacy and it increased my patience. Oh, interesting. So when you're speaking with business leaders, oftentimes about about something that drives compensation, for example, or compensation for their team, there's a lot of passion there. And those conversations, I have to have a lot of hard conversations here. And I like that part of my job. Raising teenagers, you know, my kids aren't teenagers anymore, but the fact that I've gone through that path of, of raising those teenagers, there's so many hard conversations you need to have with a person who's sitting across from you who's very passionate and digging in their heels and disagrees with what you're saying. And how to navigate that is very challenging. And I feel like I learned how to do it as a mother. And then I, it, it translated into, into some of the conversations I have to have here as a CEO. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I had to think about it when I first became the CEO, like, wow, I, I feel myself being diplomatic. And where did I learn this? Like, how, where is this coming from? And that's how I, when I really thought through it, I realized it was from a lot of the negotiations that I had to do with high school aged people. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So I'm not there yet. My kids are eight, but I feel like I've gotten better as a leader since kids because I'm being much more intentional with my time. Mm. Before I had more time to waste, so to speak. So I would like do things I didn't really need to do, right? I could not work very smartly and it didn't matter as much, but now like every minute matters so much that I feel like I'm, I just have greater impact with my time. And that's been a, yeah. a gift because- I was kind of wasting time before. That makes a lot of sense. I, I can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's like, I, no, <laughs> I don't have to. This is the time I have to allocate and this is how I'm going to get it all done within that time. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So I'm thinking about the difference between how you were raised and your own kids. So your children have a CEO as a mother and your husband is a physician and you have these kids in high school and college. And so how are you talking to them about education and career planning and thinking about this managing? You want them to achieve and aim high, yeah. but also managing expectations. The idea that you're going to have this accomplished CEO and physician, like that may not be everyone's you know, pathway. And I would just love to hear how you're talking with them. Any tips you have? Yeah, really great question. The primary answer about how we talk to our kids about their career planning and education is very carefully. We, we're, we're very careful <laughs> about it. So um, my, my son is a sophomore at the University of Illinois. My daughter is a senior at the University of Michigan. And my daughter is a nursing major and my son is an acting major. And my husband and I are Gen Xers. And so we certainly come from a, from a generation in which I think Gen Xers were told you need to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a finance person. I just feel like that's what we heard. That was the sort of the trend and the vibe at the time. I remember like physically, I remember hearing that from grandparents and mentors and teachers, you need to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a, a finance person, or a, an accountant. You know, basically, that's what that was yeah, the messaging yeah. that I received. And I do feel like there's quite a few people of my generation that ended up in 
on paths that that didn't make them happy um, because of this messaging that we were receiving generationally, right? And we really um, did try to instill in our kids the message that you can do whatever you want, whatever you set your mind to do, and you you can do whatever makes you happy, and we're going to support you in doing what makes you happy. Now, at the same time, we wanted them to go to business school or medical school. That's what we wanted. Sure. You know, because it's worked out really well for both of us. And it became clear pretty quickly that that wasn't going to happen, particularly since it was in the pandemic. And both of our kids were able to witness us working from home. And they said things along the lines of, we don't know what we want to do, but we do not want to do that (laughs) because they don't want to see it every day. (laughs) Right. So helping them sort of figure out their passions and they are both very passionate about what they're doing and it does really feel like the right majors for them right now so helping them along that path really gently but not telling them what to do was really our approach to that and i and i think it's worked out i know that's so good i'd love to go back to what we talked about before and see if you have any magic bullet answer with how you're giving them this um incredible life but instilling them these values of uh, not taking things for granted and working hard and like everything you learned growing up with the hardships you did mm-hmm. and how you're able to do that with them. Or maybe you don't have an answer. No, I do. I do have an I do have a little bit of an answer to that. So they were able to save their own money and they were able to work in the summers in high school and they're still working in the summers now. So we certainly try to have them use right now their own money first um, and then Mm -hmm. come to us when they need more than that. And I'm really proud my son was able to make it, you know, the whole year, you know, with on his own money. Yes, you know, we are paying his tuition. I'm happy to disclose that. But he all his extra money, his fun money, his go to Starbucks money. And I I don't want to eat in the dining hall. I want to eat, you know, I want to eat out. He managed that on his own. And I think when they when they ask us, when they say, okay, I'm out and here's here's what I need. They describe why and what's going to work for them. So I do feel like they are to this. I, I love that about college. That's sort of, sort of this mini adulthood, right? Where you're kind yeah, you're, right. you're, you're half independent or three quarters independent. And yes, we still have this back, back stuff. But I really enjoyed um, watching how they are not indulgent and how seriously they take their own money and how seriously they take it when they have to ask us for help. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Where did you go to college? I went to Indiana University. Oh, yeah. I went to Illinois. Though at the time we went to college, you and I, I mean, state school tuition was so cheap. They really were. I did not get any financial aid. I went to University of Illinois. It was 3000 a year. Yes. Like that was full boat. And it was the same, same, really similar to me. I had a little bit of financial aid, but it was really close to the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different world now. That's true. So being a woman in finance, You're a trailblazer for sure. I know that mentorship is really important to you. So how are you supporting aspiring female leaders in finance to achieve their goals? What do you think it is that they, in this particular industry, are really needing from their mentors and sponsors at work? You know, I think that's a really great great question. And one of the things I did recently was that I pulled together a group of women across the firm that I didn't know very well that were emerging leaders or leaders. And I really wanted to hear their voices about what, you know, what's it like to be an emerging woman leader at Mesero or in finance? You know, what's that like? And what do you think is holding you back? And what do you think is propelling you forward? 
because certainly I have informal conversations with people like you about this all the time, but I definitely wanted to understand like what they needed. And I was, I was encouraged and discouraged by what I heard, but mostly encouraged. I was encouraged that they were saying they did not feel held back. They didn't perceive a glass ceiling and they didn't feel held back. What they, what they did need help with though was kind of understanding the big picture. I think sometimes we as women were so detail oriented. We get in, we get in the, in our roles and we take them really seriously. And um, mm-hmm. they were looking for paths to be able to kind of see the, the, the whole organization and get a different perspective on the whole firm rather than just be sort of siloed in their own business. Yeah. I mean, they need that cross training you got. At exactly right. Exactly right. So it was great to hear that messaging. And it's yeah. great to be able to act upon that for these women leaders at the front. And you're also doing a lot at Mesero on diversity and inclusion. I know that you're one of the leaders in this space. You're one of the big sponsors of the work that the exec club does in this area. So thank you. What have you found to be some of the most effective strategies that companies can use to really have an impact on gender diversity and inclusivity in their organizations? Well, you know, I'm trying to follow on along on the work that Richard Price did, you know, my my predecessor. So what Richard did, you know, shortly after the murder of George Floyd was create or formalize. I mean, I think this already existed, but he formalized our DEI council that's comprised of, you know, diverse leaders throughout the firm. And this council Richard really worked to make sure that they have a high profile. They reported directly to him. They um, present at our board of directors meetings. They present at our town halls and our shareholder meetings, and they do road shows throughout the firm in our, to our various businesses. And they inform, they kind of recommend and inform our work here. I, I appreciate you saying our firm is a leader, but we certainly have work to do and, you know, we're not, we're not resting at all. But what, what they do is they think through or help us think through and provide recommendations on training. Um, they recommended that we do a DEI audit and engage a third party to do an audit. And that was really eye-opening. And that's when we learned exactly how much more work we do have to do, even though I do think we're doing a great job. You know, some of the first things that a lot of firms do is this unconscious bias training, which I think is great. We did that first, but there's more, you know, we've done in, inclusive hiring training for managers, you know, there, there are more steps to do. They also monitor our spend. So we have a certain amount of dollars allocated for community spend related to DE&I initiatives. And our council very carefully allocates those dollars primarily to organizations here in Chicago where that we think are really moving the needle and in Um, particularly education and and underserved neighborhoods. So they help inform that work as well. So raising their profile in the firm and making sure they actually have real responsibilities. What I really don't want the DEI council to be is sort of a place where we just talk and we don't do. We have to have action items. And I've told them that, you know, we meet on a monthly basis and I tell them that monthly, I want to leave here with with to-dos. You guys, your job is to give me to-do so that we can partner together to do this really important work. So I heard you say three things I took notes on that I think is so important for everyone listening. So first, that this is not just one person's or one small team's 
issue, right? It's not like, oh, well, we have a chief diversity officer and they have a team of two and they're the ones that are doing this. Like, no, it is not their issue. It is the entire organization's issue. And so the fact that you've created this really expansive cross-functional team to tackle this is so critical. And I want more organizations to do it. Two, that you have actual metrics, right? And everyone is held accountable. So it's not a whole lot of talk or not just one or two soft things that we'll eventually do, but you have all of these uh, metrics, short-term and long-term. And then three, that you're having them present to the board, Yes, right? That this is like at the highest levels, not something that's embedded within HR, you know, as as one of the functions. So those are three things I heard you say that are so critical and are such hallmarks probably of your success. I think everyone should try to emulate to the extent they can in their organizations. Agreed, 100%. So clearly one of your superpowers is this authenticity. I'm sure everyone has gotten that listening to you so far and your vulnerability, your willingness to just share and put things on the table and as an offering for exchange and people to share their experiences with you. Um, was there ever a time where you were afraid to lead through authenticity and vulnerability? Did it ever bite you? You know, How have you really leaned into this as this is now the leadership style that works for you? You know, for me, I'm I'm certain that it has bitten me from time to time, but I don't know. I think so much of my job, and actually when I look back, my roles prior to this current role, so much of that is about relationships, no matter what your role is. It's your relationships with your direct reports, your relationships with your peers, your third-party relationships out for, outside the firm, and your relationship with your manager and the leaders above you. It's so much about if that those relationships determine whether or not you're going to be successful in your role. I personally don't know how to build a relationship with someone without being authentic or without being vulnerable. And certainly you have to calibrate that and you have to calibrate that to your audience. But I'm all about building relationships of trust. And again, I don't know how to do that without being authentic and vulnerable. If yeah. somebody, I try very hard to never lie to people that work with me. If they ask me a question and I can't answer it, instead of making up something, I would say, you know, I really can't talk about that <laughs> rather than lie. Yeah. Um, if somebody says, are you, how's your day going? And my day isn't going well. I, I don't know how to say I'm great. That's just, that's not how I build relationships. I say, you know, I've had better days <laughs> and, and I might give a little reason why my day is not going well, rather than just lie and say everything is fine. I, I, I think in order to be be able to build relationships of trust, you have to be authentic and vulnerable. And that's been my approach for a long time, even before I was in the school. I think it's so scary for people though, especially people coming up in their career. And so what advice do you have for them that this really is you know, the best way to go about it versus the posturing and yeah. you know, try and present the self, which I think so many people feel like they need to do this. I need to act as if, if I'm going to get the exactly job. exactly right. And it, it really can be so off-putting. But I, you know, I see what you're saying. What my advice would be is, um, why don't you try to practice? So why don't you pick a mentor or your manager or a peer or somebody, pick, pick somebody that you do trust, that you do have a trusting relationship and start there and, and, and be your authentic self and be vulnerable and see what happens. See if that deepens your relationship. See if that makes things better for you or makes things worse. We certainly all have things. We, we certainly all need to protect ourselves, right? And we need to yeah, have yeah. certain things that we're just not going to share. And that's okay. But there's still a way to be authentic and vulnerable and have those boundaries still be in place. 
yeah, you just set it exactly boundaries. I mean, you still have boundaries. You don't share everything, right. you know, in your life. Right. But, you know, when there's something that, to your point, can create a bit of trust in this relationship. I, again, I think of it as an offering, right? I'm going to offer this vulnerable thing about me yes. to open the door to then you sharing. And now we have a connection. That's exactly but right. But someone has to go first. Exactly right? right. And oftentimes these hard conversations that I have, I'm trying to put myself in, in the other person's shoes, right? And they should be doing the same thing so we can move forward. So I might share something with them about a time that I felt like they're feeling right now. And I still don't really, I don't understand how that really hurt, could hurt me. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm careful and I think it actually helps us move forward. So something interesting, I'm much better at this at work than I am at home. Like I can be this really vulnerable, authentic, all of this, but at home, I can be very different. Like in my personal relationships, I can get defensive more easily. I could get like, you know, don't tell me what to do kind of like things that I would never do at work. Um, and I'm curious, are you just as good in your personal relationships oh as God, you are in your work? This is so timely. My, my husband and I were just talking about this yesterday because, you know, he has very high um, patient ratings at work. He takes care of sick children and he has very high ratings. He's one of the highest rated doctors in the hospital from from his patients. And, he, and, and it's because he's such a strong communicator. And I get the same feedback here that I'm a, that I'm a very strong communicator and here. And then we have these misunderstandings <laughs> that I can't figure out, you know, why we're, we're, we're supposedly these praised and gifted communicators, but yeah, we still struggle with misunderstandings all the time. I know. It's so funny. So COVID was like the, these things that people discovered about you at, during COVID. So my husband would hear me on the phone with people, like talking them through a challenging thing or whatever. And I'd hang up, he'd be like, it's unbelievable. Like the, how kind and empathetic and patient. You don't talk to me that way when I bring you a problem. Yes. We have we have so, some conversations. It's funny. It's very it's very similar in my house. I know. Without COVID, he wouldn't have been exposed to that. Sure, so it actually sure. was a good uh, a good thing for us to talk about. So you're really coming on the scene as one of Chicago's civic leaders. And you're doing so much. You're on our board, but you're doing many, many things. And not all I'd say not many CEOs spend their time and give in these ways. And has this always been important to you? Why is it important to you? So it has always been important to me from as far as where my heart is at. But when I was a young working mother, um, it was, it was there's, it's really hard to allocate time, right, to, to civic and community yep. matters because I felt always like I was kind of getting a B plus at home and a B minus at work because of you know, there just wasn't enough hours in a day in the day. But now that I'm to a point in my life when my kids are in college and also Mazaro has been such a good influence on me because, you know, community engagement is just so important as part of the fabric of this firm. So it really it really caught on with me when I came here and I wanted to be a part of that. And I was excited to be a part of that. And the way that our firm supports its employees in their community and civic endeavors. It just, it makes mm -hmm. me really proud. It certainly benefits the firm. I think, you know, from a client perspective and also from a hiring perspective, these young professionals now, they want to understand not only they want to make sure they're joining an inclusive firm, but they also want to make sure that they're um, joining a firm that, uh, you know, gives back to the community, gives back isn't even the right word, but that engages mm -hmm. with the community in, in a really positive way. That's important to them. So I think it's 
not only the right thing to do, but really healthy for our firm from a from a bottom line perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So you're someone who has risen through the ranks to the very top now of the financial industry. What qualities do you want more leaders in the finance industry to work to develop? Where do you feel like the industry still has some work to do in terms of how they lead? You know, I certainly think, um, and we've talked about this already, but I certainly think the industry has more work to do with regard to women and people of color and just diversity in general. I I certainly think that we have more work to do there, but I do continue to want to see more of the authenticity that we've talked about before a little bit more patience. There's not a ton of patience in our industry. We tend to have, you know, knee-jerk reactions about the market, I think. And I think we need to remember to keep our eye on the ball with regards to long-term kind of strategic thinking. And I think in financial services, there certainly is an element of greed and uh, of of greediness in, in leadership. And I think as an industry, we need to make sure that we're patient and have a long-term focus and that we're really caring for and developing and bringing along the next generation of leaders at the same time. Yep. Absolutely. Very well said. So these past few years, we've talked about COVID a little bit in and out. They've been so challenging for so many people, financially, emotionally, mentally. Looking forward now, what gives you hope? Really good question. So one of the things that I feel like my coworkers and I really learned during the pandemic was the importance of, you know, balance and family. And we really learned how to trust each other outside of the office. We trusted each other inside of the office, but we trust each other to get things done outside of the office. And what I mean is, you know, since so many things got canceled for all of us personally and professionally, but really a lot of personal things, I don't think anybody wants, wants their coworker to miss their son's soccer game ever because we missed, we missed so many of those already, right? The kids did. And so did we. And you only have those moments, you know, as a parent where you're like, wow, that's my kid. You know, you only, you get a precious few number of those. And I know that now. So now if somebody wants to leave, at, needs to leave at three to catch their kids swim meet or soccer game before it was, I felt like that was so hard, much harder to do pre-pandemic. Now we can say, of course, go. And we know that person's going to jump back on their email or check back in and make sure that everything is going to get done for the evening. We, it's not as much of a, you, you need this FaceTime and you need to be here. Even though I believe in the importance of gathering, not only yeah. for maintaining our culture, but also for developing younger professionals. There's this, there's this balanced flexibility that we've sort of, sort of built in for each other. I need to leave at three today. I can't, I, it's meet the teacher day. I'm not going to be there till 10. Then it used to be a big deal. And it, it, especially if it happened too often and it's just not perceived that way anymore. And I feel like we're doing a better job taking care of each other that way. And that, yeah. that gives me a lot of hope. I really, that's, I think that's a real positive. And I think it's a part of it is because of the pandemic. Well, and our hyperconnectivity is such a double-edged sword, right? Like you're always available and then you're always available. Yep. But you also know that if that person leaves, if there's an emergency, you can contact them, right? And like, you know that they can, they are going to get back on in an hour. Yes. Whereas it was different 20 years ago. When you left the office, that was pretty much it. Like right. there was no, 
you couldn't really keep working. Right. And this is better. And this is better. And you can be available and yet not available all the time. Right. I, I think right. there's a there's a difference between those two things. And I, I, I think it's working for us. It's certainly working for me. I don't get the Sunday scaries as bad as I used to get <laughs> um, and, yeah. you know, anymore because I know, you know, we don't we gather Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and we can work from home on Monday. I usually come into the office, but I don't put a ton of pressure on myself to be in the office at eight o'clock. You know, I, I, I do I do my first meeting from home oftentimes and I get to the office when it makes sense. Yeah, right. So if you could go back and have a conversation with your college self, you know, young Natalie at Indiana, what advice would you want to give yourself now as you were embarking on your career journey? A, a couple pieces. So first of all, and I do say this to young people a lot, you, you need to practice a little bit of patience. Sometimes when you're ready for that next role, the firm isn't or, you know, the, the, it's a business. And oftentimes business needs to evolve for your next great role to emerge or be created as part of that org chart. And I do sense impatience from young people. And I was certainly impatient, too, in the early stages of my career. You know, another thing I would say is don't be afraid to try a role that sounds unappealing to you. You know, listen to your mentors. Sometimes they're giving you a role that might sound unappealing to you because you're actually really going to grow in that role. You know, I talked a little bit about the role at Nuveen that I had when I managed a large, diverse team. What I didn't mention was that, you know, it was I was managing accounts payable, travel, business accounting, taxes, internal controls and treasury. And it seemed like sort of the land of the misfit toys to me and something that nobody <laughs> wanted to do. And it didn't seem very dynamic or anything that like that a young person would be excited to yeah. do. And then it ended up being my ticket to getting the CFO role at Mesero. So, and I, it, it was one of the, my favorite jobs I've ever had because I learned how to manage a large, diverse team and I didn't have that skill set before. So yeah. I would say be open-minded and be, and be patient. Oh, that's excellent advice. Uh, still in my life. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is not just for young people. That is advice for a lifetime. Thank you. So one of the last things we love to do are these rapid fire questions where we have like maybe 10 questions and we just go real fast for people to get to know you a little bit more. Are you up for it? I am up for it. Let's go. Okay. Don't overthink. We're just going to go really fast. Okay. What's the first thing you do in the morning? The wordle. One thing you can't leave the house without? My readers. Coffee or tea? Tea. Favorite thing on your work desk? My tea. <laughs> <laughs> your favorite work lunch? Um, it's not really a, a, about the food as much for me as if, if I get to walk along the river walk as a, at the end of it. That's my favorite part of lunch. Oh, yeah. And you're right there. You could easily like sneak right. out and do it's that. Lovely. That's really I love nice. What's your favorite Chicago summertime activity? Uh, Cubs game. Favorite hidden gem or secret spot in Chicago? I love Cherry Circle Room as a restaurant. I'm kind of a foodie and favorite yeah. hidden gem or secret spot is always going to be a restaurant for me. And I, I love the vibe in there and I really love the food and I get there as much as I can. Do you know, they surprisingly have a really good breakfast. Oh, I've been there for breakfast a few times. You don't think of it for breakfast, but it's good. Okay. Thanks for the advice. You're welcome. How do you unwind and relax at the end of the day? Cocktail, ritual cocktail with my husband. Oh, very nice. Yeah. What's the last good book you read? I'm in the middle of it, but I'm already, I'm, I'm ready to say it's good because I love it so much. It's Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garment. I just finished it. Just <laughs> finished it. I'm it's almost so there. I'm not quite been, I'm in the middle. So 
Yeah. Like I it? loved it too. Yeah. I can't remember. I think it popped up on my feed or something. Um, and I said, oh, I'll try it. Oh, I thought it was so great. What's your dream vacation? My dream vacation was Japan, but we already went. We went in 2019 and I want to go. I love, I loved it. I, um, I love the food and I love the people and the culture and I can't wait to get back there. And lastly, something that not everyone knows about you. Okay. Um, I love puzzles and I love escape rooms. I love crossword puzzles. We do escape rooms as a family every year, but my, I have this aspiration when people ask me what I want to do next. I want to create crossword puzzles. I want to be able to like make a challenging crossword puzzle. And I want to make them for the people that I love. Like I want to do a family one that the theme is, you know, our vacations or our inside jokes or, you know, something like that. I want to make these crosswords for the people in my life that I love. It's something I want to like leave behind and I want them to be really clever and amazing. But I don't know if I actually have the capability to do it but it's definitely it's it's a it's a long-term aspiration oh that's so neat i wonder if you can get like a ghost writer to help you yeah. you know someone who like that's what they do maybe ask a little short i really want to do it with myself on like on like yes. i'm picturing like some graph paper and some sharpies yeah. like i really i really want to give it a try that's so cool which ones do you do is there a certain newspapers you do or just i'm, books, I'm or? usa today and new york times but the new york times gets you know harder as the week goes on and i I, I can do it toward the beginning of the week and I can't do it toward the ends of the week. In USA Today, I can, I, I can do, a, I'm a little bit better at the USA Today. It's a little bit easier to be honest. I think a New York Times Saturday crossword puzzle is the hardest thing in the world. It is the hardest one. Like, there are times where I could get like two and that right. is it. Like, I mean, like some, I can't some do people anything. think Sunday is the hardest, but it's actually no. Saturday that's the hardest. Sunday is like a midweek and Saturday is the yeah. hardest. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Oh my gosh, Natalie, this was so much fun. Okay. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I, we're I, able I to. I really enjoyed it. This was, this was the um, best part of my day. So thank you. Oh, that's great. We're able to reprise some of our conversations for people. That's right. And we'll keep the conversation going. Thank you so much, Margaret. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.